Welcome to the Crystal Clear Podcast. I'm Eric Felton. We're here with Weekly Standard founder and editor-at-large, Bill Crystal, wrapping up the year that was. Bill, how are you? Fine. It was kind of a heck of a year, huh? It was. You know, just to wrap up from last week's podcast, last week I asked you your prediction on whether tax reform, tax cuts would pass and would be signed. You said that it was probably... Um, better to rely on hindsight prognostication um, and look this week at whether it had happened. So what's your prediction for tax cuts at this point? I think it happened. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the president signed it, and uh, it will be the law of the land. It is the law of the land. Uh, its effects, I think, very much in question, both political and economic. Uh, I'm not one of those who's hysterically against the bill, and I'm not one of those who thinks it's the greatest thing ever to happen to the tax code. I think a lot of the changes are mixed and probably not of huge consequence, actually, in terms of the overall uh, economic uh, well-being and uh, economic growth of the country. So we'll see. The Republicans have you know, staked a lot on it. Uh, what people forget, and the Democrats have staked a lot on opposing it, right now the polls show it's relatively unpopular. But obviously, reality will matter here. If we have strong economic growth nine months from now, uh, unemployment down even further, uh, markets up even more, wages growing, people will say, well, okay, I guess Trump and the Republicans know what they're doing. And that could help him some and help Republicans some in the midterms. If uh, the economy is kind of where it is or if it sags a bit just because of the business cycle, if people are a little surprised to discover they didn't get the tax cuts they hoped they would get uh, when they look at their take-home pay stubs, uh, then, then things could start to, uh, you know, go south a little bit for even more for Republicans. But I, I'm dubious that it makes a huge effect either way. Actually, I think, I, and in fact, I would even put it this way: for now, it's the big shiny object Republicans are pursuing. The debt left has expended a huge amount of rhetoric and denouncing it, and so it seems like a big deal. I'd be pretty surprised if a year from now, the tax package is one of the biggest uh, facts, one of the biggest uh, events, really, of Trump's first two years. Although if it hadn't passed and hadn't been signed into law, um, the bitter recriminations that would have followed would have consumed all of the oxygen in the room for for the rest of the next year. Well, or at least for a while, these things can fade faster. I mean, wasn't uh, the failure to repeal Obamacare was going to totally color the Trump presidency? And I myself am unhappy that they failed to repeal more of it. But um, Trump seems to be moving on. The country's moving on. It turns out that you know only if 10 million, 15, 20 million people are affected directly by the individual market. So, you know, it's the same with the tax thing. These things can move on. People can move on faster than one thinks. Moving on, indeed, to another Trump action. We saw this week um, Turkey, in particular, um, having a, a celebration for what it considered to be a smackdown of the U.S. at the United Nations over Jerusalem. What do you make of it all? So I'm a defender of the Trump administration on what they did in terms of moving, uh, saying they'll recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, which it is, and and saying they'll move the embassy there, which they should do. Um, I, I'm mostly a defender of their rhetoric at the United Nations, where they made the perfectly sensible point. Uh, we made it 30 years ago when I was in government, uh, almost 30 years ago, uh, when we were arguing for a resolution repealing the Zionism is racism, the infamous Zionism is racism resolution from 1975. I remember Vice President Quayle saying to foreign ministers and presidents of other governments, look, this is an important vote for us. We're going to notice who votes which way, and it will be part of our diplomatic uh, calculations going forward, which of our friends stood with us and which didn't. It's 
totally normal diplomacy to say that. Now Trump did it in his usual slightly, uh, and had his ambassador Nikki Haley do it maybe in a slightly more uh, confrontational way, and you know from the podium of the United Nations in a way that maybe was a little unusual. But uh, I think it's perfectly legitimate to say that this is something we care about. We don't know why the United Nations is even taking up a resolution denouncing us for putting our embassy where we want to put it. What do, what, what do they care? No, we're not telling them to put it somewhere else. I mean, we would urge them to, but we're not we're not cutting off aid to countries that don't move their embassy to Jerusalem. So just let us move ours and make our case. But no, they have to butt in because it's about Israel. Uh, and uh, good for Trump for standing, and Nikki Haley for standing up to that. And, um, and actually, they reduced the number of people voting against us compared to what it was expected to be. A lot of people just took a walk. There weren't that many people voting with us. There were a lot of absentees, some abstentions. But I, um, no, I'm, I'm a defender of Trump and of Nikki Haley on this. And I, it reminds me how much I dislike the UN. I've got to say, if there's anything to, I'm to the right of the Trump administration on, it's probably the UN. Maybe we should really look at getting out of it in much more fundamental ways. It's very hard for me to tell what good the UN does in the real world. And and I think it does a lot of harm, actually, in, in sort of the moral equivalence it creates between dictatorships and democracies, uh, the way in which it gives people an excuse not to deal with problems because, oh, the UN's dealing with it. I, I really am, uh, I got to say, I, I'm even more hostile to the UN than I used to be. But without the UN, who would triple park in, in lower Manhattan? Good point. And yeah, no, it's true. I guess it's good for us to have all these diplomats there because we can eavesdrop on them or something. And it, <laughs> keeps, it keeps restaurant, you know, restaurant occupancy high and therefore provides a lot of jobs for Americans on the east side. But um, it really is a – when you think more about it, though, I mean, I, leaving aside one's theoretical objections to kind of world government and, and all this and treating dictatorships and democracies equally, and I do have theoretical objections to, or principled objections to that, just in the real world, like what actual – you know, wars has the UN stopped or prevented or solved? Uh, how much more often has it been used as an excuse not to do something than as a way of doing something? And how much of its time is spent just uh, uh, attacking Israel rather than dealing with the actual, you know, bloodthirsty and, and blood bloody-handed governments that exist around the world? So I, I am I, I'm actually fairly serious that someone should take a fresh look at the UN and really ask much more seriously whether it shouldn't be radically changed or curtailed. So this week in the Weekly Standard magazine, you as a uh, sort of way to wrap up the year that was, um, you announce your man or men of 2017. You recognize that 2016, Donald Trump was clearly, for better or worse, the man of the year. 2017, your, your award goes to... Publius, the author, the pseudonymous author of the Federalist Papers, which is Hamilton, Madison, and Jay, primarily Hamilton and Madison, uh, who defended the Constitution, who, let's say, using them as a kind of stand-in for the founders, for the authors of the Constitution overall. Um, And, you know, the Constitution had a good year. The institutions of America that depend on and follow from uh, the Constitution had a good year, I think partly in checking Donald Trump. I mean, it turned out that the separation of powers works, the independent judiciary works, the rule of law has some strong supports in America. Limited government, uh, much to Trump's displeasure at times, works in the sense that the private sector, the markets, the civil society don't simply do what he wants. Federalism works. So I think uh, it was a somewhat reassuring year about the institutional strength of liberty uh, uh, in America. 
And um, uh, in that respect, I think it was a good year for Publius. Publius showed he was stronger than Trump, if you want to put it that way. It doesn't mean that there are no challenges over the next three years. And also stronger, incidentally, than the progressives who have so derided the Constitution and the founders over decades. Maybe some progressives, some liberals will learn to reappreciate, to appreciate once again the achievement of the founders. That would be nice. Maybe that's a little too much to hope for. But it, the, the whole experience of both Obama and Trump for me has reminded me that there is a superior alternative to both Obama's progressivism and Trump's populism, and that is the founder's understanding of self-government. So I'm happy to, in my modest way, do call attention to the Federalist, urge everyone to take a look at it again and think about, not just as a historical matter, but think about you know, self-government in the way they thought about it as a difficult experiment, something that's not easy to preserve, something that requires a lot of thought and a lot of care uh, in constructing and defending institutions. Um, that's an attitude that neither the progressives nor the populists have. But maybe I could make a contrarian case that an honorable mention should go to Brutus. And by Brutus, I don't mean the backstabber. I mean the anti-federalist author um, Robert Yates, we often forget that the Federalists were not writing and acting by themselves, but were part of a debate. Much of the strength of the Constitution and the strength of the Federalist structure came about, I think, because there were serious people who were also intellectuals, public intellectuals, making a solid case against the, the, the Federalists that I think forced them to bolster, strengthen, and hone their, their own arguments. No, that's a fair point. I would still be on the Federalist side of that debate, and so I don't think one should be sort of give equivalent weight. But I think, yes, and that was a serious debate. It's a good reminder that uh, there's a utility to having serious debates in politics uh, and that one side is rarely uh, entirely in possession of the, of the whole truth. And so some of the compromises that were made were probably, and some of the countervailing forces were probably useful to have. I, I would pretty strongly be on the Federalist side, though, in that original argument. Just as today, I'd be pretty strongly on the side of certain arguments about the Constitution, limited government, and so forth, which isn't to say, though, that you don't need the, the pushback, the intelligent pushback. Well, there's one of the depressing things about the Trump, about this past year, I sort of allude to this, I suppose, in my little piece, but I don't really develop this, is how stupid the debate has been in so many ways. You know, the Trump, Trumpy populism versus a kind of hysterical reaction, uh, which, you know, let's go to the barricades, uh, dictatorship is descending tomorrow. And so that really uh, be good to go back and read both the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist, as you suggest, to see what a higher level discussion of politics and self-government and free government is. Well, Bill Crystal, thanks for joining us on the Crystal Clear Podcast, and here's to a happy new year. Happy new year to you, Eric, and to all of our listeners.